You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now listen, I don't know what it was like for you as a kid growing up. I don't know how athletic you were. Uh, but you know, as, as, as a kid, I was, I was like a skinny little toothpick. And, and, and I mean, I, you, you looked at me and I was just basically like, like one inch diameter, just the whole thing, just, just this skinny little toothpick. But the problem was that I had this head in these cheeks. So this giant head and these giant cheeks on this toothpick of a body. I look like a walking lollipop. And, and, and so, you know, obviously when, when it came time to choosing up teams like for football or for basketball or whatever it was, you know, I, I was always the last to be chosen. And when they chose me, it was always with some kind of derogatory, like, well, I guess we'll take Bhutan, you know, and uh, you know, that makes you feel good. Uh, but, but then one day, fifth grade, I'm, I'm walking down the hallway at Russell Elementary uh, in, in Arvada, and all of a sudden, the music teacher calls me out. He, he spots me, and, and he says, hey, have you ever thought about playing trombone? And I thought, this guy sees something in me. He sees potential in me. This is the first time in my whole life someone saw potential in me. Turns out he didn't see potential. What he saw were big cheeks. He thought those cheeks could move some serious air. So he, he sends me home with a trombone and a, and a, and a music book, and, and he says, you know, start practicing. No, listen, the problem is I had never had a music lesson in my whole life, but all these other kids, that's all they've been doing their whole lives. They've been in music classes. And so I was like way behind. And so I bring it home, and, and like a week later, I get a really bad case of tonsillitis. I'm out of school for a month. I can't practice for a month, nothing. So finally, after a month, I come back to school, and now there's a recital in front of the whole school and all the parents. And so I tell the music teacher, I'm like, I can't do it. I, I haven't been able to practice. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to read music. I don't know any. I can't do this. He says, that's okay. Just fake it. That's what I did. You know, I mean, you've heard of Guitar Hero. I was like Trombone Hero, really more like, like Trombone Zero. Now, if you don't know, the trombone is, is a slide horn. So, you know, you, you blow, and then at the same time, if you want to change notes, you're sliding it up and down. And so, and so he said, you know, just, just get up there and fake it. So I'm up there just kind of puffing my cheeks out, just... You know, and and like, oh yeah, and I got to look like I'm playing. So then I'm I'm trying to follow the guys on the side of me, and and so when they slide, I'm trying to slide. But the problem is, is when they were out here, I was here. When they were here, I'm so you know, and and everybody's doing what you're doing. They're laughing. I mean, the first time in my life I was chosen for something, and I failed miserably. Well, uh, this morning we meet David, the man that, that God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. And yet in many ways, David reminds us that the last to be chosen are often the first that God chooses. He, he reminds us that, that the world's zeros are often God's heroes. And so now as we look at the first three verses, we'll, we'll look at the will of God, finding the will of God. So it says in verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. Now remember, last week we saw that the prophet Samuel had told uh, King Saul, he, he, he told him, listen, because you chose not to listen to God, because you chose to, to, to not obey God, uh, well, now God's going to find someone who will. Because you've rejected God, God has rejected you as being the king. And so now this morning, we meet Saul's replacement. And yet first we see that, that God actually challenges Samuel. And, and he says, Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? And God's like, listen, I've moved on. You need to move on. 
You know, I've let go. You need to let go. You know, sometimes we hang on to things longer than we need to. He says, I've moved on. You need to move on. He's like, you know what? I've got a new plan, and I've got a new man for that new plan. So you need to move on. And this just reminds us that, you know, sometimes we could be so focused on what God is not doing that we completely miss out on what God is doing. So before Samuel could find the new king, he had to get over the old king. And so in verse 2, it says, and Samuel said, how, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So now we're getting a glimpse into to how tyrannical Saul is becoming. He's becoming very paranoid ever since he's been told that God's going to replace him. It's as if now he's, he's got this vindictive edge. He's going to kill anyone who has an eye on his throne. And so Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So God tells Samuel, invite Jesse to the feast and then I shall show you what you shall do. And this just reminds us that, that, that oftentimes when God leads us, he often leads us one step at a time, step by step. And it, listen, that's frustrating sometimes, right? I mean, how many of you would, 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 would prefer that, that God would just give you like, like, like his detailed blueprint for your life all at once? You know, I mean, if, if life was a, was, a, was a road trip, I mean, we, we want to see the entire road map, right? We want to see the, the, the whole trip from start to finish. But the problem with God is often he just tells us what the next turn is. He's like, at the light, turn right. In fact, you know, it reminds me, a handful of years ago, Amy and I were, were coming back from a pastor's conference in, in, in Southern California. We're returning the rental car to, to the airport, to Orange County Airport. And yet Siri is navigating, and she's having us take like the, like the, like the, the strangest uh, uh, scenic route you could ever think of. I mean, we're like bobbing and weaving through all these neighborhoods. We're off the highway, we're going through this neighborhood and that neighborhood, and then all of a sudden, we're, we're like a mile, maybe two miles away from the airport, and all of a sudden we hear Siri say, get out of your car and walk. <laughs> I mean, she just expected me to leave the rental car right there in this strange neighborhood and then just drag our luggage two miles to the airport. Now, you know, sometimes the frustrating thing is, is that can sometimes feel what it is like to, to follow God. And so God doesn't give Samuel the, 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 the whole plan. He doesn't give Samuel every detail. He just tells him what step one is. He says, go, invite Jesse, and then I'll show you what to do. In other words, if you want to know what step two is going to be, take step one first. Take step one, and then you'll find step two. He leads us step by step. Reminds us of Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of man are established by the Lord. He leads us step by step. Or Psalm 119, verse 105, where it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Listen, in those, in those ancient days, when you traveled at night, ancient travelers would often carry an oil lamp and, and hold it in front of them to sort of reveal the, the ruts and the rocks and the stumps, the, the things in the dark that might trip them up. In fact, sometimes they would actually strap a small clay oil lamp to their feet, much like this oil lamp here. Now, that oil lamp is probably only about this big. So they'd, they'd strap that to their feet, and it would literally light their path. But it wouldn't light the whole path. It would light one step. So if you wanted to see the rest of the path, you had to keep stepping. It's a light unto my feet. 
And so you, you had to step by step. That's how the Lord leads us. He doesn't reveal the whole journey. He gives us one step at a time. He leads us step by step. But listen, sometimes we, we get worried. You know, what, what, if, what, if, what if we miss God's will? You know, we, we, we start to panic. And, you know, maybe, maybe we're in the, in the midst of a crossroads in our life. You know, maybe we're facing a big decision like, like uh, having to stay put or, or perhaps having to, to move across the country. You know, maybe it's to take a new job or a, a different position. And, and on the one hand, this seems like it could be a great opportunity. But on the other hand, we're not really sure if it's God's will. And we're not really sure if we, if we should step out and take that kind of risk, if we should risk everything, if we should risk our family for this. And so we, we, we're like, you know, what, what if I take the wrong step? You know, what if I step out and, and, and what if it's the wrong direction? Well, listen to this. Isaiah 30 verse 21 says, If you go the wrong way to the right or to the left, you will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the right way. You should go this way. In other words, listen, if, if, you're, if your heart's right, if you're seeking God, I mean, if, if, if what you're seeking is God's will and you're truly trying to do what he wants you to do and you step out and if it turns out to be the wrong turn, don't worry, he's going to re-navigate you. He's going to redirect you. He's going to reroute your steps. He's, you're going to hear this, this leading. You're going to you know, turn this way, go that way. Now, the problem is, is, is some of you might be like me and my wife, more my wife than me, but some of, some of you might, might be the kind who like to plan ahead. Maybe you like to plan the next five years, the five-year plan. And at the same time, you're like, well, well, how can I plan ahead? How can I plan the next five years when he only leads me step by step? Well, Proverbs 16.9 reminds us, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In other words... You know, we can make our plans. We, we, we can chart our course, but you know what? God has veto power. And so just because we've made our plans, just because we, we've, we've planned this and planned that, that doesn't mean our plans are set in stone. And so even if we've planned something that, that, that's outside of God's will, the, 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 the truth of the matter is he's got veto power. He can redirect your steps. You might hear this phrase in the back of your head that says, rerouting. The, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then finally, we read in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. And so God is, is instructing Samuel and leading Samuel in the way that he should go. And he tells him to go and, and, and invite Jesse, and then I'll show you what you shall do. Take step one if you want to discover what step two is. That's how we find the will of God. But now as we look at verses 4 through 13, these verses uh, challenge us with calling and testing. The calling of God and also the testing of God. So verse 4, Samuel did what, what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came and, uh, to meet him trembling. And they said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also con consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, remember, 
keep in mind, back in chapter 9 and, and, and chapter 10, when, when, when Saul first became the king of Israel, we saw that really he was the people's choice, right? In fact, if anything, he was kind of voted uh, People Magazine's sexiest man in Israel. Remember, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says, speaking of Saul, it says, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so now, all these years later, Samuel it, it, it comes to Jesse's house, and he, and, he, and, he, and he sees Jesse's oldest son, his firstborn son, Eliab. And Eliab, just like Saul, is, is tall, dark, and handsome, probably ripped, probably jacked, probably spent a little time in the gym. And he looks at him, and he's, and he's thinking, you know what? This guy's perfect. He's the perfect replacement for Saul. But, but here's the problem. The problem was that, was that God wasn't looking for Saul's replacement. God wasn't looking for, for someone in, 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 in Saul's likeness. God was looking for a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. But you see, this just reminds us that oftentimes when we choose someone to follow, when we choose a leader, we often choose celebrity over integrity. We choose appearance over heart. But God says that he doesn't see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so in verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass, uh, pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And, 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 and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy. Now the word ruddy, it's just an old Hebrew word that means reddish. Maybe, maybe describing a reddish complexion, red hair, maybe freckles, that sort of thing. Now, now he was ruddy, and, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so, one by one, each of, of, of Jesse's seven sons are paraded before Samuel. And yet, one by one, they all hear the same phrase, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord hasn't chosen this one, the Lord hasn't chosen that one, and the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Now, by the way, that word chosen, it's an old Hebrew word, bachar. And it's a word that, that means to, to prove or to try or, or, to, or to put to the test. It means to, to find acceptable after it's been tested. It's only acceptable after it's been tested. It's been well said that a leader who hasn't been tested is a leader who cannot be trusted. And listen, sometimes, you know, uh, we, we, we see some, some famous celebrity, you know, maybe, maybe a, a, a musician or, or an actor or a professional athlete, and, and then we hear that they accepted Jesus, that, that, they, that they profess Christ, that they now believe in Jesus, they're a follower of Jesus. And we get all excited and we, we prop them up, we, we put them up on a pedestal, we, 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 we elevate them to some kind of place of leadership and now all of a sudden they're, they're speaking at churches and they're at conferences and they got their YouTube thing and their, and their podcast and, 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 and then all of a sudden uh, they, they crash and burn. And we're surprised by this. Well, what happened? Well, too much too soon. They needed time to prepare. They needed time to grow in the Lord. They needed to be tested 
And that's why the Bible, when it talks about leadership qualifications, speaking of the qualifications to be a leader, the Bible says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. It says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become too puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There may be a call in their life, but, but, but they need to be tested first. So yes, David was God's choice, but before David could be found acceptable for the role, he had to be tested. This just reminds us that, 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 that God's chosen must first be God's tested. He must test you if he's going to use you. Now, later on in chapter 17, verse uh, 33, we're, we're told that, that David, at this time in his life, when, when he was anointed, when he was chosen to be the king, at this time in his life, we're told that, that in chapter 17, verse 33, that he was a youth. That word youth, it's the Hebrew na'ar. Now, among many ways, it can, it can be translated teenager or even pre-teen. And so because of this, many scholars believe that David was somewhere between the ages of 12 to maybe 16 years old. Now keep that in mind when you read next week's chapter. Somewhere between 12 to 16 years old. But then we fast forward all the way over to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 4, and we read these words. It says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So let's put this all together. What we see is, is that David gets chosen, David gets anointed to be the next king of Israel in this chapter, chapter 16, but then it won't be for 14 to maybe 18 years later that he finally actually becomes the king. It took like a half a, cent, half, half, half a decade to maybe two decades for this to finally happen. And we think, well, what took so long? I mean, why did it take 14 to maybe 18 years? Why did it take so long? Answer? Well, because before David could be crowned, before he could be enthroned, he had to be tested. He had to be ready. He wasn't ready to, to be the next king of Israel. Do you know any 12 to 16-year-olds that are ready to be like the next king of anything? And so he had to be tested. But now as we pick it up in verses 14 through 16, we see that, that Saul failed the test. David has to be tested, but we see that Saul failed the test. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. One of the most misunderstood Bible verses of all time. This verse is not saying that God did this to him. Rather, it's implying that God allowed it to happen. That because God's spirit was removed from him, now there's no more protection. Because God's spirit's removed from him, now he's open, he's vulnerable to, to, to any other attack. And so, and so God allowed it to happen. And we see that God allowed it for a purpose. Why? Because of this happening, this opens the door for David to come in, as we'll see in a moment. But God allowed it. And so now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And, and, and when the harmful spirit comes upon you, the harmful spirit from God comes upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Now, the word liar there, it, it, some translations will use the word harp. I think that's a really bad translation because uh, the ancient descriptions of what a liar looked like, it has nothing to do with like a harp. Uh, an ancient description of a liar is that it was a, it was a, a wooden instrument, a string instrument. Uh, the, they would have a long wooden neck with strings going down, and then at the base it would have like this raw, round circular kind of base with a hole in it that the strings went across, and you would strum it. We might call that a guitar. 
And so the picture is, 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 that, is that Saul has is, is lost his mind. He's completely mad. And, and the only thing that can calm him down, the only thing that kind of helped restore him to his right mind was to be soothed with music. So they're starting to look for a musician in, in, in all this. But what I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss this, this deliberate contrast between verse 13 and verse 14. Notice the end of verse 13, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then immediately the very next verse, verse 14 says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. There is a very deliberate contrast between David and Saul. One had the Spirit, the other did not have the Spirit. That's interesting. You may remember when, when Saul was first anointed as, as, as the king of Israel, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 10, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And so this tells us that, that in the beginning, Saul started in the Spirit, but he didn't finish in the Spirit. He started well, but he finished poorly. He started in the Spirit, but then he tried to finish in his own strength. He tried to finish without the Spirit. And that's why we say that he failed the test. He started in the Spirit, but he didn't finish in the Spirit. Reminds us of Galatians 3.3 that says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And so he started in the Spirit, but then he took matters into his own hands and tried to finish in his own strength, and he failed the test. And this is why God's looking for a man after his own heart. It's now in verse 17, down to the end. We, we, we now are, are looking at God's timing and God's choosing. God's timing and God's choosing. Verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him before me. And one of the young men answered and said, behold, I have, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is, uh, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send, send me David, your son, who was, who was with the sheep. And, and Jesse took a donkey laden with, with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And, and David came to Saul and, and, and entered into a service, and Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. And, and, and Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight." And whenever a harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul ref was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So now David enters the scene. Saul's kind of lost his mind, and the only thing that seems to soothe him is the soothing music that's played by a skillful musician named David. And so ultimately what we see is that God chose David to be the next king of Israel. But as I mentioned earlier, it's going to take somewhere between 14 to 18 years for that to come to pass. He's told when he's maybe 12, maybe, maybe 16 years old, he's going to be the king. But he has to wait until he's 30 years old to, until he becomes the king. In fact, for the, for the next several years, over the next several chapters as we continue to read, we're going to see that for, for the next several years, year after year, God would use Saul in, in, in all his fits of, of, of demonic rage, demonic anger, to prepare David for the throne. And so even, even though uh, David had been, had been anointed by Samuel, even though he was chosen by God, called by God, he had to wait for the timing of God. He was chosen by God, but he still had to wait for the timing of God. It's been well said that when God bolts the door, don't try to go in through the window. 
Listen, wait for God. Don't rush it. Don't take matters into your own hands. And remember this, the, the, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And so as David's being hunted relentlessly by Saul year after year after year, it was God's grace that kept David. And I'm here to tell you, God's grace will keep you. But the biggest mistake we often make when it comes to, it comes to God's will is, is oftentimes we, we, we get so excited about, about the will of God that we end up running ahead of God. We're, we're, we, we want God's will, but we want it now. We want God's will, but we don't want God's timing. I don't know about you, but I've met people over the years who, 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 who try to rush things. You know, maybe it's somebody who's rushing a business decision or, or making a, a decision about a career, or, or maybe, maybe it's somebody who feels like they're supposed to be married and they want to be married, but they don't want to wait, and so they rush ahead. Reminds me of Ruth Graham, the, the wife of the late Billy Graham, when Ruth said, if, if God would have answered all my prayers immediately, I would have been married to the wrong man many, many, many times over. And so yes, David was chosen by God, but we can't forget that that Hebrew word chosen can also be translated tested. God's chosen are also God's tested. And so he was chosen, but he wasn't ready. And, and over the next 14 to 18 years, it was the running from Saul that would make him ready for the throne that God had prepared for him. But he had to be tested. He had to, he had to be ready. And listen, throughout the scriptures, we've seen the same pattern over and over again. When God calls someone, when God raises someone up, first he tests them. First he prepares them. For example, we, we see this with the Apostle Paul. Remember, we, we, we find out in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, that's when Paul gets saved. That's when Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. And then Jesus reveals to a guy named Ananias what the call on Paul's life is. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So this verse tells us that the call on Paul's life was to preach the gospel to Gentiles, preach the gospel to kings, and to preach the gospel to his own people, the Jewish people, the children of Israel. But listen, it's not like the very second that Paul got saved, that instantly, the moment he became a Christian, that immediately he started preaching, that immediately he just joined the ministry. He started preaching the gospel to Gentiles, started preaching the gospel to kings, and started preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. No, in fact, we're told in Galatians chapter 1, that Paul first spent the next three years in the desert in Arabia. And so he didn't go into the ministry right away. He got saved, and then he spent the next three years in the desert in Arabia. Because you see, God was going to use Paul in a powerful way. But the truth is that Paul wasn't ready. He wasn't ready for prime time. Now listen, if he would have gotten saved in our day, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, he would already have a book deal. Right? He'd be on the, on the church preaching circuit. He'd be at this church and that church. He'd be on talk shows. He'd have a podcast, a YouTube channel, you name it. But instead, uh, God sends him to the desert. He sends him to Arabia. Why? To get his BD. What's that, his bachelor's degree? No, his backside of the desert degree. He sent him to the desert. Why? To prepare him to test him, to make him ready. You see, Paul didn't need a promotion. He needed isolation. He needed, he, he needed seclusion. He needed some time where it was just him and the Lord for three years growing in the Lord, and then he would be ready. 
And the truth is, 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 is God does this over and over again. In fact, we see it with Moses. Uh, you know, Moses had to spend some time in the desert. Remember the story? We read that, that Moses uh, sees this Egyptian soldier beating up a fellow Jewish person. Now, before that, Moses had, had discovered that the call in his life was to lead the Jewish people. So Moses takes matters into his own hands. He kills the Egyptian soldier, and he's thinking, you know what? Maybe this is how God's going to raise me up as the leader of my people. But that's not what happens. He doesn't become the leader of his people. Instead, God sends him to the desert for 40 years. He's in the desert for 40 years because, because he, he had to be humbled. Now, he may have gotten his PhD from, from, the, from the finest Egyptian educational facilities there were, but now he needed his BD, his backside of the desert degree. Because quite frankly, there's some lessons that cannot be learned in a classroom. They can only be learned through the school of hard knocks. They can only be learned in the desert. In fact, it's interesting. Moses' life can be broken up into, into three periods of 40 years. The first 40 years, uh, he, he spent in Egypt being trained at the finest uh, and the best institutions they had to offer. His second 40 years, he, he, he spent in the desert being broken and humbled and learning to depend on God. And then his last 40 years, he spent finally leading the people of Israel. Dwight Moody put it this way. He said, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning that he was a nobody. And then he spent his last 40 years learning how a nobody with God can become a somebody. You know, the same way. Maybe you're wondering, what's taking so long? I mean, when am I going to see God's plan happen? When's it going to happen? What's taking so long? Well, it might be that, that you're in the desert. It might be that you're getting prepared. You, you're getting tested. It might be that you're in a time in your life where you need to get your BD, your backside of the desert degree, because he's testing you. He's preparing you because God's chosen have to also be God's tested. Listen, I know it's frustrating. I know it's, it can be frustrating to wait for God's timing, you know, to, 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 to just wait for it. It can be so tempting to just try to rush ahead and, and take matters in our own hands and, and try to make it happen. This is why we must always remember that Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. His timing is beautiful. And so in this passage this morning, we see that, we see that God's choice for the next king was, quite frankly, the last person that anyone would have chosen. In fact, his own father wouldn't even have chosen him. In fact, Jesse, his own father, kind of forgot about him. He's like, oh yeah, I, I do have an eighth son. <laughs> He's out there with the sheep. If you understand, in, in that culture, the emphasis was always placed on the, on the firstborn, the oldest. I mean, you know, the firstborn would, would not only inherit the name, but they would inherit the family business and, and the legacy and the whole thing. It was, the emphasis was always on the firstborn, not the youngest, not the lastborn. In fact, the lastborn, the, the youngest, was always the least significant. And as a result, they were given the last place at the table, given the worst jobs, I mean, the, 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 and they were given the least amount of affection, especially by the father. In that culture, the firstborn would get the affection of his father, and the, and the lastborn got the affection of his mother. You'd be the mama's boy. Now, it's with that in mind that child and family psychologist Kevin Lehman, in, in his book titled The Birth Order Book, kind of has this imaginary paraphrase, conversation between, between Samuel and Jesse. And so Samuel's like, was well, that it? I mean, do you have any other sons? I mean, is that, is that all your sons? 
And then Kevin Lehman, in his, in his paraphrase, he, he says that Jesse answers and says, no, there, there's one more. He's the youngest, the, the, the mother's darling. We don't have much use for him here, either here in the city or, or on the farm. So, so we've given him a, the, the task of looking after our small flock of sheep. Now, if none of my other sons is acceptable, Samuel, I doubt you'll find him suitable. He's like, you know what? If we don't want him, why would you want him? Well, yet it, it turns out that, that he who was the most unlikely to ever be chosen was the, was the very one that God had chosen. Why? Because as reminded in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, God says, my power shows up best in weak people. And so God was looking for a man after his heart. And when he looked at David's heart, he liked what he saw. We're reminded in, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame that which is wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And so as I said at the beginning, this reminds us that often the last to be chosen are the very ones that God chooses first. As, as we said, the world's zeros are often God's heroes. In fact, I remember at a pastor's conference, a Calvary Chapel pastor got up and he said, you know what? You find the biggest loser, find the biggest reject in your whole church, and you probably just found the next Calvary Chapel pastor. Because God sees not as man sees. You and I, we look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Do you have a heart for God? Do you have a heart to serve God? Do you have a heart to follow God? Do you have a heart to bring others to God? That's the heart that God's looking for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your calling and that your calling's not in vain. Lord, you, we look at ourselves and we see our weaknesses. We, we see our ineptitude. We see how unworthy we are. We see how nobody would want some, somebody like us. Maybe our own parents didn't even want us. But Lord, when you look at us, you see the heart. You see a heart of a man, a heart of a woman that you can use. The weaker, the better, because your power shows up best in weak people. So we, 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 we give you our hearts and we ask you to use our lives. Make us like change in your pocket that you can spend any way you want. But at the end of the day, help us to remember it's not about us. We're just change. We're just pocket change. Only thing worse than a step down from us is pocket lint. Lord, it's all about you. It's all about your glory. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand one more time and sing to the Lord? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.